I'm Mike Ward and welcome to uh, Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG Heart of Clarivate. This episode is one of a number that we are recording alongside on Helix, the digital conference that is being hosted by One Nucleus. In line with this, uh, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Joe Panetta, um, who is able to provide us with insights from one of the world's most important biotech hotspots. Uh, Joe is president and CEO of Biocom, uh, an organization founded in 1995, representing more than 1,300 California-based life science businesses and providing the strongest public voice for research institutions and for companies. So, Joe, uh, I hope you're, uh, you're keeping well and, and those you care about are, are all, all safe and, and well. Uh, thanks very much for, for, for joining us. Thank you, Mike. It's good to see you again. Um, I enjoyed our last meeting, which was face-to-face -face up in San Francisco. And um, thank you for asking. We're all doing well here in San Diego and uh, beginning to open things up uh, to get outside, to get into the businesses and restaurants. And uh, our biotech and medical device companies here in California have been uh, working as essential businesses uh, throughout this COVID-19 pandemic. And so we're very grateful to all of our members and their employees for the hard work that they've been doing over the last three months. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, so on that point, how, how has COVID-19 actually been affecting you know, the, the work of, of that industry and also the work of, of, of Biocom? You know, what, what, what are people having to do to sort of minimize uh, the impact and, and stay you know, true to their missions? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's an excellent question, and it's and it's a, it's a it's a multidimensional question as well. Um, I'll, I'll begin with our industry here in California. Um, you know, California is a, a, a state of forty million people with a biotech economy uh, that amounts to about three hundred billion dollars in economic impact each year, and we have three major biotechnology life science clusters here the greater Bay Area cluster up in San Francisco, the Los Angeles area cluster, and then the, uh, what I refer to as the Southern California cluster, even though the folks in Los Angeles believe that Southern California ends at Los Angeles, we're down here in Orange County in San Diego uh, with a very large cluster down here. And they're all very different, uh, not only in terms of the, the composition as, as uh, life science entities, but um, they're very different uh, as geographic and metropolitan and urban areas as well. So um, the companies down here in San Diego uh, have been working um, all along as essential businesses. Uh, people have been at work uh, doing a, a variety of things. Uh, many of our companies are focused on developing the, um, the, the diagnostics, the therapies, the tools, uh, that are being used to uh, combat the COVID-19 pandemic, the vaccines. Um, in the Bay Area, we have many of our uh, larger pharmaceutical and life science entities, and those companies produce a lot of uh, very important major drugs uh, and manufacture them uh, in, in that area as well. And so the manufacturing facilities have been up and running throughout this pandemic. Uh, the companies up there as well have been working on a number of different therapies and diagnostics and vaccines. And so 
uh, is essential businesses. Most of them have been at work. Um, and then uh, when we look at the Los Angeles area, that is um, a bit more of a, a medical device focused cluster, but it's also a, a very nascent uh, biotechnology cluster as well. Uh, they've had a tougher time uh, there uh, getting into the labs. Uh, and at the same time, the, the device companies uh, that uh, have been providing a lot of the support equipment in the hospitals uh, have been continuously functioning up there to be able to produce the ventilators and the, uh, the uh, infusion pumps and the other kinds of uh, devices that are needed to, to do the testing and keep people alive. Uh, here at Biocom, uh, we actually uh, went home to work on March 12th. Uh, we set the example, I think, here uh, for work from home, and we began to experiment with how we could most effectively and efficiently deliver to our members from home. And uh, we've seen some, some very good successes there, including our ability to do more virtual online types of networking events and meetings. And we found that the advantage to doing this is that it makes it easier for people from throughout this large state to participate in these meetings. And it also makes it easier for us to bring in some real expertise from across the country and the world uh, who might not normally have the opportunity to travel here while providing the ability for them to participate virtually has given us some, some access to some, some tremendous uh, talent and expertise on COVID-19 and other topics that we've talked about. We've just recently also been working very hard with our board and uh, board member companies to develop a guidebook to coming back into the workplace on a larger scale. And we just issued it last week uh, and uh, just had incredible participation by over 80 of our members with expertise in such areas as environmental health and safety, uh, testing, human resources, facilities operation, uh, supply chain, to provide the true expertise from those who, those companies that can help the smaller companies to understand how to best get back into the workplace. And so we've been very active throughout this period. We're looking forward to coming back into the office next week, actually. Okay, so so we'll, we'll we'll come back to say some of the points that you you raised there uh, around the, sort of the guidance that you're providing com uh, companies. One of the one of your roles, though, um, at Biocom is to have conversations with policymakers. Um, we've seen you know across the globe, uh, governments have been providing you know a lot of uh, unprecedented levels of support. For uh, for their economies, uh, in your conversations with with, with policymakers, you know, what have you been advocating for most, and what do what do the policymakers still need to do? Well, um, thank you for asking. Policy and advocacy are at the core of our organization. You mentioned that we were founded in 1995. Uh, we were founded as a policy organization, and at that time, actually, our policy focus was uh, it was very important, but it was limited to uh, local discussions with, with elected officials and policymakers. Um, this COVID-19 pandemic has actually taken us back to our roots. Um, we have been functioning at the local level uh, 
uh, as well as at the state and the national levels on various policy issues surround and regulatory issues surrounding COVID-19. So um, I'll give you some examples. Um, we've been working with a task force here in San Diego to develop overall across the board guidance for business to come back to work. And we've had very active discussions between our members and our mayor here in San Diego. Uh, likewise, those conversations are taking place with the uh, government officials in South San Francisco, where we're based up in the Bay Area, as well as with the mayor's office in Los Angeles. Um, two reasons for doing that. One, uh, and again, this goes back to our roots, we want to make sure that the elected officials are fully aware and fully appreciate and understand both the advantages of having our companies at work and the challenges that they face that are unique to our industry as restrictions and guidance are being developed for being in the workplace. Uh, so those are active conversations that we've had. At the state level, um, where we have governance that oversees overall COVID-19 policy, uh, we've had conversations with our governor's office about our ability to uh, provide the various types of testing that the state might need. Uh, one of our former board chairs is on the governor's task force for reopening the California economy. Uh, and we're in continual conversations with her about the things that we're going to need from the state to be able to do that. In fact, one of the primary focal points of our advocacy early on was to ensure that as the governor on a statewide basis uh, declared which industries were essential, that life science, biotech, pharmaceuticals, and medical devices were included in his designation of essential industries. And uh, while some of that took place uh, early on, this was a process that we had to work on for several weeks before we could ensure that the entire industry was, was covered. Now, on the federal level, um, again, um, long-time relationships that we've had in Washington, D.C. We've had an office in Washington, D.C. for about 10 years now with staff uh, on the advocacy front as well as on the FDA regulatory front. Um, and so let me begin with FDA. Uh, FDA has done an amazing job throughout this pandemic of finding opportunities to uh, safely and efficiently fast track the testing and the diagnostics uh, and, and the therapies and vaccines. So we've been continually informing our members about uh, policy and guidance that's been coming out of FDA uh, on how to uh, continue to ensure that our companies uh, could uh, submit the, uh, the uh, various types of, of uh, tools and, and therapies that they're developing and get them uh, reviewed and hopefully approved quickly. On the advocacy front, uh, as uh, I, I'm sure uh, our, our friends in the UK are aware, we've had a number of economic, economic stimulus packages here in the US uh, over the past few months. One of those uh, in, included a um, program to fund small businesses, to provide loans to small businesses. Small businesses here in the US are defined by the, the Small Business Administration as those companies that have fewer than 500 employees. So as you can well imagine uh, the majority of our life science industry consists of companies with fewer than 500 employees. 
And so we've advocated to ensure that uh, those companies would be able to obtain that funding. Now, what I mean by that is many of our companies are venture capital based and our small business administration has not typically uh, given favorable treatment to venture based companies. The, the thinking being, well, they already get what they need from venture capitalists. Yeah. Uh, so we've been successful working with our friends in DC to persuade the SBA to ensure that venture capital based companies who are challenged at this time could obtain the funding that they need uh, to uh, keep on operating throughout this, this crisis as well. So uh, we've been active on every front. So, uh, I mean, it, it's interesting sort of, you know, talking about the sort of, you know, the support there, because, you know, sometimes this support is, it's kind of restricted um, because they actually have to have like, you know, proper businesses where they have like a PNL, et cetera, um, where they sort of demonstrate revenues. And obviously a lot of biotech startups don't, uh, don't go in that. Going in that space, um, if we sort of, you know, just look at some of the sort of specific recommendations, though, you know, as as people you know sort of consider trying to go back to some sort of you know, business normality, what 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 would you say the sort of the key recommendations that you know, Biocom has been advocating uh, to its membership? Well, um, it's been an interesting process that we've gone through with our membership, Mike. Uh, we at first assumed uh, that there would either be some sort of a uniform uh, business-wide requirement for uh, viral screening or antibody screening. Um, and, um, and of course, I, as I mentioned, I've participated on the mayor's task force and, and Magda Marquette, our former chair, has participated on the governor's task force. And what's come out of these task forces is uh, more of a recommendation that we do temperature screening. And then um, if people exceed the uh, temperature limit, which I believe is 100.4 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, um, that uh, they would then be required to quarantine and, uh, and then be tested before they could come back in, into the office. Um, but testing has been uh, very much a, a focal point for us. Um, and what we've come down to is that we know that there are a number of different diagnostic tests that have either been approved uh, or are in the process of being approved by the FDA. And we're working very hard to ensure that we're aware of all of those abilities to do testing that we can then advise our members on so that uh, if they want to do anything beyond temperature testing, they have that access to all of those various types of testing that are available. I was just recently tested myself by one of our member companies, uh, and the advantage to their test uh, is, um, you know, people have referred to the uh, some of the initial tests as almost a brain probe with a swab. Um, this is a very, very uh, uninvasive test that just requires uh, a swab uh, very close to the to the exterior of your of your nose, and um, and then we sent it in, and I was tested, and and um, came out negative. Uh, and uh, we will be recommending those kinds of of opportunities to our members as well. The other big challenge that that we've had is is more on um, the occupation of facilities, and what I mean by that is that. Um, of course, uh, some of the, the most important keys to protecting yourself against contracting the, the uh, coronavirus uh, are to wear 
uh, personal protective equipment, to wear a mask, to distance yourself from other people, to ensure that you uh, keep your hands clean and that, uh, that surfaces are sanitized. Um, that's been a little bit more of a challenge in, in the life science labs. And what I mean by that is that uh, we're in closed environments, people are close together. Uh, and so uh, we've had to make sure that we use the best expertise we have to uh, advise our folks in laboratory facilities about how to safely protect themselves in that kind of a closed environment. Um, more personal protective equipment, um, more, more uh, of a focus on sanitizing and, uh, and ensuring that masks are being worn uh, uh, in that close environment. Right. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> in conversations I've had with uh, some uh, industry executives, um, they've, they've suggested, in fact, that they've also moved to uh, sort of, you know, a shift uh, process where, in <laughs> fact, you'll have 50% you know, capacity for part of the day, 50% capacity for another part of the day. So they start much earlier in the morning um, or the, the labs open much later in the evening. Has there sort of been sort of any moves to that, and and is this something that might be sustained, you know, even in a post-pandemic world? Great question. Well, I, you know, I've uh, been on the phone with many of our CEOs, both here in California and at, at uh, our sister organization, MassBio in Massachusetts, um, and uh, we recently actually did a seminar uh, webinar. Uh, with John Mariganori, the CEO of Al Nylum in, in Boston, and Basil Dahiat, the CEO of Zencor up in Los Angeles. Um, but I've been on the phone with many of our CEOs on our board as well. Um, I, the first thing I'll say, and this includes me as well, uh, is a lot of us at, at the CEO level have not typically been work from home types of people. Uh, we're on uh, airplanes, we're in meetings, we're uh, at conferences. This has been a new experience for us to understand um, how to work from home and to better appreciate those employees that we have who do work at home. And in talking with our CEOs, uh, I think there's been a consensus that there's much greater appreciation for the actual value of working from home uh, and how efficient and how productive that can be. And so many of our CEOs have said, that they now will look at uh, the flexible work schedules that can be created to allow more people to work from home uh, from a much different perspective than in the past. Now, paired with that, um, we here at Biocom and, uh, and many of the CEOs of our companies and the HR uh, leaders at our companies have um, enacted policies that will allow people much more flexibility to work from home during the remainder of this pandemic until we have a vaccine and, uh, and uh, we, we see that uh, the, uh, the uh, pervasiveness is, has declined. Um, so uh, we, and I know a number of our other companies are enacting uh, no questions asked work from home policies. Uh, people have the full opportunity to continue to work from home if they want to. Uh, certainly people who uh, have elevated temperature or test positive will will work from home, uh, and then uh, and then beyond that, um, you mentioned sh uh, shifts. We will uh, at least initially. Uh, we ha we have an office here in San Diego that uh, houses about forty people. Uh, we will be only allowing ten of our employees at a time in the office. We will not be 
allowing any visitors of, or guests for probably the first two to three weeks at least coming back into the office. I know a number of our other companies are doing that as well uh, and trying to stagger the days of the week when people are in the office uh, and, and create shift opportunities for people as well. Um, we'll see how it goes. I, I yeah. think a lot of this is going to be sort of a test period. One of the things you mentioned was the fact that, <clears throat> you know, for example, down in the San Diego area, there's you know, a lot of uh, technology, uh, sort of diagnostics you know, up in the north. Uh, in the Bay Area, there's a lot of work on pharmaceuticals, you know, biopharma, the biotech, the, the vaccines guys. Um, you know, there's been a fantastic uh, response, a very rapid response um, to COVID-19 and the challenges brought by the industry. I just sort of, you know, you're looking at what uh, has happened. You know, what, what are the, the initiatives that have impressed you most about that response? I, I think um, what's, what's impressed me the most is the fact that um, across the board with a, literally hundreds of different initiatives that are underway to develop all of these different uh, diagnostics and therapies and vaccines, um, there it's it's been um it's been completely selfless um you know our industry comes under fire a lot here in this country uh for being um for being accused of being too focused on profits uh on on uh the the cost of drugs being too high um the industry is focused on helping people on helping patients. And what's impressed me both most about this uh, has, has been that um, there's, there's been no focus on um, questions like, how much will we profit from this? How long will we continue to sell this? I mean, let's face it, Mike, we, we both know that uh, the vaccines and anti-infectives business uh, has not exactly been the most profitable area of pharmaceuticals. Uh, and it's not been one that's been uh, uh, overly well funded. I talked to many of our CEOs here uh, before this crisis uh, who were struggling to get their uh, infectives uh, funded, uh, their anti-infectives funded, uh, to get the regulatory attention that they need. Um, this crisis has changed that uh, significantly. Um, and I've been impressed with what companies have done uh, to, uh, to to just jump into developing these these therapies without any real uh, promise of reimbursement. Uh, you have companies uh, like uh, well UK-based AstraZeneca uh, who are in partnerships developing uh, vaccines um, and producing millions of doses without even knowing if uh, this is going to work, uh, without even knowing if it's going to get regulatory approval. Um, and, and so I think the thing that's impressed me most is how um, this industry has very selflessly jumped into doing everything possible to uh, develop what's needed to end this, this pandemic as quickly as possible. So you, you mentioned the, the you know, public perception of the pharmaceutical industry, the biotech industry, um, has never been the greatest. And, and yet in a lot of company mission statements, there, there is this, this drive to 
you know, improve uh, patient lives. I, I, I'm just wondering, you know, again, in the sort of conversations you've had, or you know, maybe something this is you already you have policies for, but what what do you think companies can actually do beyond sort of, you know, developing the, sort of the life-saving, life-enhancing treatments? What can they do to actually be genuinely more patient-centric and be actually seen to be patient-centric? Well, um, we, we all need to be more patient-centric. And, and I, was, I was very, very pleased um, to, to see that uh, bio, uh, our, our, our sister organization, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, uh, has brought in a new CEO who's very uh, patient focused. I think Michelle is just going to be uh, exactly what our industry needs uh, to continue uh, this quest to ensure that uh, we are listening to patients, we're delivering to patients, and we're including patients uh, in every aspect of, of what we do, including our advocacy work uh, with, with, with legislators. Um, we need to continue to bring patient groups in uh, and uh, we need to continue to uh, ensure that as we deliver our message, uh, that we are partnered with patient groups in, in doing so. Um, we've had uh, a long, constructive, productive, beneficial history of working with patient groups in this industry. Um, and, and most of it has taken place very selflessly behind the scenes. Um, and, and at the same time, uh, I think we haven't really appreciated the, the full benefit of working side by side in public with, with patient groups. Uh, I, as the head of an advocacy organization, can only do so much uh, personally and, and with my CEOs to persuade elected officials of the benefits of what we do in this industry. Uh, we deliver that message, and I've seen it so many times as we've taken patient advocates to Sacramento and to Washington, D.C. Um, we do it so much more effectively in working with patient groups uh, because they can very sincerely express uh, the hope uh, and the benefit of what we do in this industry. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, uh, it's come sort of, you know, wet, as you're wearing your advocacy hat, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, has clearly uh, been demonstrated is the importance of collaboration, particularly across borders. Um, and yet, at the moment, you know, in the world, we're seeing, you know, a number of governments actually starting to clamp down on, on immigration and also even, you know, foreign investment. Um, to what extent are you, you concerned about such moves and what kind of pressure are you, for example, putting on policymakers um, to uh, you know, not necessarily go down that route? Yeah, um, well, I've been working in this industry now for over 30 years and um, it's been increasingly clear that not only is it uh, a global industry, but it's a very uh, intricately connected global industry. Um, we need to continue to ensure that um, we build the partnerships that we need to build um, to, to get access to the best research, the best technology. You know, Biocom uh, about uh, six or seven years ago opened an office in Tokyo, Japan. Um, we have incredible partnerships in Japan. Um, 
with a number of companies, about uh, 50 or so members of Biocom in, in Japan. Uh, many of them are opening offices here in California uh, and taking advantage of the opportunity to uh, work with other companies here in California and to work with the various research institutions and universities here. Uh, we need to continue to, to, to build those relationships. We've had a great relationship with One Nucleus over the years. Uh, we're very actively now working to increase that relationship more. I'm glad we're able to do this interview as a, as a part of improving that relationship. And uh, we've had a long time relationship uh, in Southern France with the biotech cluster uh, in uh, the area around Marseille, uh, all, all across the Southern coast to, to, to Nice as, as well. Uh, and we're building a relationship in Australia with Ausbio uh, as well. Um, we think it's very important for our companies to have access to all of the partnerships that can be created across the globe. Um, that goes to another point. Um, we found that we are so reliant, so heavily reliant on uh, not only drugs, but personal protective equipment, um, ventilators, other types of equipment um, that are produced in China. Uh, and um, the majority of our dependency on those products is, is on China. Um, now, you know, there's been a lot of conversation around uh, bringing all of that manufacturing back to the U.S. I believe, and we believe here at Biocom, that um, more of that needs to take place. Um, we also believe that uh, it needs to take place on a more global level. Um, I know from my experience that we've had uh, great uh, incentives, for example, from Puerto Rico to produce pharmaceuticals there in the past. Uh, we've had uh, great incentives in Ireland to produce our pharmaceuticals in, in Ireland as well. Uh, we need to see that in, in other places around the world. I'm hoping that ha that increases in, in Japan uh, as, as our relationships grow there as well. Uh, we need to diversify more in terms of our manufacturing. And then finally, I'll, I'll say that uh, we need to continue to be able to ex access the best researchers uh, and, uh, and to bring students here to train in the U.S. And so we're advocating uh, in Congress uh, that uh, we ensure that we have an appropriate number of work visas issued to bring those foreign workers here, those foreign engineers and researchers here to the U.S., uh, to both train and to work in our life science community uh, at, at a time when, of course, uh, we've seen our government restrict uh, travel, not only because of COVID-19, but for other reasons as well. Yeah. So what, one of the hobbies I have is actually sort of tracking um, you know, biotech financing, and I've done it for, 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 for years and years. And, you know, the you know, the, the most, um, I guess, successful uh, areas for, for raising finance are, you know, Massachusetts, uh, the Bay Area, and, and San Diego. I mean, arguably always in the top, in the top three. Um, with the sort of, the sort of the economy in, you know, sort of certainly frothy, if not in turmoil, what, what has been the sort of the, um, the impact on the ability of, of companies to be able to actually either you know raise raise sort of venture capital or even start up companies um, with the fact that you know, they can't move around as easy, you can't do the roadshows as as uh, in the way that one would have done it before. 
Well, we've been tracking this very closely and I've been having conversations with uh, our venture capital uh, companies here in California throughout this crisis. Um, and what I've been hearing is that uh, they continue to have a, a desire to, to fund companies. Um, of course, uh, the, the life science industry uh, involves long-term investment. One of our challenges uh, in this pandemic has been that um, we don't have the ability as, as much as we used to at, at all to be face-to-face -face with people, which has affected uh, the clinical trials process. Many clinical trials have had to, to shut down. Um, and so um, that's been a challenge uh, to, to uh, get those started back up again, I think will be very, very important in terms of companies continuing to work toward meeting their financing milestones in the development of, of their products. It's a challenging environment for uh, new companies. Um, I think uh, from what I've been hearing, the venture capital community has been very focused on ensuring that they continue to fund those companies that they've been funding uh, throughout this crisis to keep them, to keep them going. Uh, and um, although it's improving, um, it's been a challenge in the public markets as well. This certainly hasn't been a time when uh, there's an appetite for uh, the IPO market for companies to go into the public markets uh, either. But I know that our companies have been successful in continuing to uh, access venture capital funding uh, throughout this pandemic. And, you know, um, although uh, it's still a tenuous situation, our stock market here, uh, I think I checked today, uh, it was back up above 25,000. Um, and, and so it appears as though there's more investor confidence in the public markets and we'll see how that goes, but uh, hopefully that will continue to, uh, to promote uh, investment in life science as well. Sure. So uh, just as a, a, as a final question, um, we don't know when we're, you know, the pandemic is going to be uh, controlled, um, but we clearly have to sort of think about, you know, what that post-pandemic world will look like. And I was just wondering whether there were certain behaviors certain sort of you know business activities that people have uh, you know taken on board during this pandemic that actually might be sustainable going forward and actually might be a sort of a new new way of uh, interacting of doing business well um i think that's a that's a a, a great question uh, as as we as we move toward uh closing out our discussion because um uh, we were all set to host the Bio 2020 International Convention here in San Diego uh, in about two weeks. Um, and obviously we're not able to do that. People can't travel, we can't have large gatherings. Um, and so uh, we've been working with, with Bio to promote what's become a uh, completely digital conference. Um, they'll offer the uh, plenary sessions, uh, in fact, I just heard that uh, Dr. Uh, Tony Fauci, whom we all know well now, has be become a bit of a celebrity, I think, not yeah. just here, but across the world. Uh, the uh, director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, who will be a plenary speaker, uh, that'll be done uh, digitally, virtually. Um, there'll be a number of, uh, of uh, panel sessions uh, as well. Uh, and um, there will be uh, digital virtual partnering as well. I think probably one of the most promising aspects going forward will be this digital partnering. Um, 
you know, we've seen what's happened with partnering over, over the years. It's grown and grown and grown to the point where if you go down to the exhibit hall floor at Bio, close to half of the exhibit hall floor is uh, closed off because it's partnering rooms for people. Um, I think we're going to be able to see that being accomplished much more effectively in, in a digital manner in the future. Uh, here at Biocom, uh, we've held uh, over the last three or four years a number of different partnering days uh, with large pharma and biotech companies, with venture capitalists. Uh, and um, what we're finding now is that we can do these digitally. Uh, you know, for example, one of our uh, best partners in partnering uh, in, these, in these partnering days is Beringer Ingelheim. Um, the last time we did this, I think they brought in 25 of their people from Germany uh, to partner here in San Diego. Um, while that's very efficient for them to be able to see many, many companies in one day, uh, what might be even more efficient is if we can, if we can partner them with many companies uh, in a digital mode and they don't have to do all that travel. I think we're going to see more of that happening in the, in the future as well on the partnering front. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, and that sort of you know, completely resonates with some of the other discussions I've had. Um, and of course, it also helps the companies, you know, reduce their carbon footprint. And it's just the sheer cost of shipping twenty-five people, uh, you know, across across the Atlantic. Um, so I think I think that that's that's something that uh, you know we're likely to see. And you know, this this clearly shows that you know that digital experience actually it, it still works. So, Joe, thanks very much for, for, for taking the time to uh, you know, talk to me today. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I think that people are going to be you know, intrigued and, and uh, very, very interested in some of the, uh, the thoughts you shared about you know, what's going on in California, uh, which is clearly you know, one of the hotspots, if not the hotspot for, 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 for the, the biopharmaceutical space. So... If you'd like to um, uh, you know, tune into future episodes, uh, follow our LinkedIn page where we're going to be posting alerts to future, future episodes. So in closing, I'd like to thank Joe again. Um, so thanks very much, Joe. Uh, I'd also like to thank the listeners for, for, for tuning in. Uh, so until next time, stay safe and healthy. I'm Mike Ward, and I'll see you in the next episode.